Scripture reading comes from the book of Luke in chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for sharing with us. It, it's uh, really touching to see someone who in their uh, career and their vocation uh, understands also the ability to, to live out the hope of the gospel. And uh, I know Aaron, know, many of us have known Aaron for years. I remember when I was a youth minister, Aaron was coming on mission trips to Mexico and uh, it just brings me back to that, seeing your heart and even referring to uh, how, how much of a blessing it was to hear the good news about that one child. Because uh, I remember coming back from Mexico years ago or just before we were coming back, Aaron uh, shared with me, this is when you were a teenager, but, uh, you know, we're leaving. What about all this need that, that's still here and how much of a difference have we really made? It is beautiful to see, and it's instructive to us. One of the things we want to grow in, you could say the thing we want to grow in, in Sutherland Church, is to understand that we gather here to be sent out 
to live out our faith in the world. This is not really the heart of what we do as a church. The heart of what we do as a church is living out our faith in the world and declaring in our actions and words the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we see pictures of that in our midst, it should um, make us grateful and also inspire us to ask that question, Holy Spirit, how would you use me to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ today? So uh, we are very, very grateful. I want to start off this morning, and it's nice to have that good reminder too, because we're going to talk about sin and judgment this morning. And uh, we have all kinds of wrong ideas around that, and there has been, in some ways, an overcorrection. Uh, so where there has been a, an overemphasis on, like, you terrible, miserable sinner, there's, at times in Christian history, been an overcorrection to not talk about sin. And uh, we need to. And so over the next number of weeks, the focus is on the cross, not sin. But uh, we have to talk about that in terms of speaking about the cross. And we're pleased to do that. It's a very hopeful message. But what I want to do at the beginning here is have a little bit of a spiritual practice. Okay, I'm going to move out of the way. And what I'd like you to do is, is look at the cross that's behind me. Because one of the things that I'm aware of as we enter into a time of speaking about the cross, and Ken did a wonderful job with the introduction last week, particularly introducing the theology, big theology of this. Um, but one of the things that is evident as we start speaking about the cross is that there's no way for us to fully wrap our minds around it, to say, you know, this is what it's all about. And so it's helpful to have uh, quick, thoughtful gentle answers as to why Jesus died, but it also is bigger than we could ever describe. So when we gather to speak about it, to speak with one another about it, and when you gather to listen, we listen together, we need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm aware even with the sermon that there's there's so much here that I'm already thinking this now, so what, what are you going to th- I'm thinking like, Lord, you need to bring this together. You need, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to teach us about the cross even as we speak. So let's take a minute now in silent prayer, and you look upon the cross, and you simply, in that quiet, ask the Holy Spirit to open your heart and your mind to what this is that Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's pray that way. This morning we move to consider one of the more common images that opens up an understanding of the cross and sin for us, and that is sin as rebellion. And you can think of rebellion in many ways. I mean, the the, uh, easy way to think about it is like a rebellious young person or something, like a disobedient uh, person. And but that God's answer to rebellion is forgiveness. In the cross, when you're praying that the Holy Spirit would reveal God's truth to you, and you look at the cross, I mean, I can't 
anticipate this, I don't know what you're feeling. So I, you might do this as well, where I think, well, if I'm feeling this, it must be similar to what other people are feeling. And when you look at that cross and you pray, dear Lord God, open my eyes to what you have done for us, there might be a sorrow over sin, right? Your own, hopefully, and other people's sin, wrongdoing, and sin in this world. But there is something altogether inviting about the cross. God is reaching out to us. And you can feel that in prayer and feel that in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is not pushing you away. He is calling you into relationship. And we have a picture of this with Jesus being encountered by this woman. Stories like this are told a number of times in the Gospels. It may be that there was more than one encounter like this. And in different gospel tellings, sometimes the woman is named and other times the woman is not named as here. What are we told about this woman who comes into the Pharisee's house? And you know who the Pharisees were. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones who were tasked in their minds and in the minds of many with telling people about God's righteousness and sin and judgment and these types of things. And so the Pharisee had invited Jesus into his house. You can imagine that he has, the Pharisee, some kind of agenda. And that comes up later in the text because he's trying to make sense of who Jesus is and was. And so Jesus comes, and then when this woman comes in and anoints Jesus' feet, the Pharisee thinks to himself, if Jesus had have known, do you see how he's already evaluating Jesus? So he's trying to make sense of who Jesus is, And he seems to be troubled by this scene. What are we told about the woman in verse 37? And behold, a woman of the city, and then this little tag, who was a sinner. How do you read scripture? I mean, a woman of the city who was a sinner. What does that mean? And why is that necessary there? If I was to say, describe you, and say, you came to Sutherland Church this morning, and behold, put your name in there, came to Sutherland Church, behold so-and-so who was a sinner. Do we need that language? We're all sinners. So why is that language there? Because particularly this sets the scene. There were people who thought of themselves as better than this woman, and so there's this tag, there's this woman who was a sinner. Separates her from them. And then she approaches Jesus with such devotion and love and humility. And he welcomes this approach and loves her and cares for her. And if you go to verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, the Pharisee said, so this is in his mind, right? Maybe he said it out loud, but he said it in his mind, probably like you do. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is. And what would he have done then? Well, he certainly wouldn't welcome her. He would judge her. He would judge her sin. And he wouldn't allow this approach. The idea is that Jesus himself is somehow sullied by the sin of this woman that he allows to touch him. There's an important theological concept in there to briefly state that that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. 
Sin doesn't tarnish God. God forgives sin. When you miss that in your religious expression, you start to do all kinds of damage, and I'll put it nicely and politely, you start to act anti-Christian. As if sin tarnishes God. That's the mind of the Pharisee. How could he let sin so close to him? So he thinks this in his head. And then look at the text. Verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him. Did the man ask Jesus a question? No. Did the man say anything to Jesus? No. Did the man say anything out loud at all? Probably not. But Jesus answered him. Isn't that beautiful gospel writing? And I think some of you sometimes, I mean, we can do this for one another. Jesus wasn't a magician. But he obviously was aware of where people were coming from. On, on the human level, we can do this one to another. There's times when I can answer you just because I see your facial expression. This man was so upset at this woman and Jesus allowing this approach that he condemned her with his face, with his thoughts, with his body language. And Jesus, our Lord Jesus, answered him. And his answer to this Pharisee was grace both for the woman and for the Pharisee. I have something to say to you. Isn't that great? In other words, I can see you're really perturbed. And I want to answer your disturbance. And Simon says, and I wonder if there's a little dagger in this. Go ahead and say it, teacher. Maybe. We don't know. And then he tells this parable about someone who owed a little and someone else who owed a lot. And who do you think will love more if the debt is forgiven? There's all kinds of convention, orders, rules, laws being broken in this scene. But like much of our scripture, rather than unpacking the theology in principles and ideas, it's just a story. A woman comes and does this. And Jesus responds in this way. And the Pharisee responds in this way. But all of these thoughts are there. What laws are being broken? How does God deal with sin in the world? The man says if he is any kind of prophet or teacher, he would know what kind of woman this is. And what do you say to that as you're reading it, if you're going to talk back to the Pharisee? You say, he does know what kind of woman this is. It's not that he's ignorant as to what kind of woman this is. It's that though we are sinful, he welcomes us. The Pharisee doesn't even have that in his mindset. If he knew, he would reject her. She's a sinner and a lawbreaker. What ought to be done with her? Guilt and sin and forgiveness. And when we start talking about sin, we tend to know other people's sin more than our own. He says, her many sins are forgiven. And he tells her that her faith has saved her. Look through that story and see if there is a place where she asked for forgiveness of sin. 
This happens at other portions in Scripture. When the paralytic is brought to Jesus, lowered through the roof, you remember that? Jesus forgives the sin with no request for forgiveness of sin. But he's impressed by something here. It helps us to remember devotionally one phrase. I'm just going to tell you this today, and then we'll get back to it. I won't even put it on the screen. When you talk about sin, rebellion, and judgment, and forgiveness, one theological kind of nice little phrase that works, or sentence, it's a phrase to remember, is that God allows himself to be the judged, like E-D on the end, judged, judge, in our place. He is the judged judge in our place. He takes the sin upon himself. Just this week, someone from our congregation, and I won't tell you who, and it makes me really happy that this person has this, and they know I'm going to tell this, okay, but I'm not going to name them. And so you have to figure out who among you is the worst sinner. Because it's this person. I mean, they're such a bad sinner that... Something happened and they couldn't maybe cross borders like many of you can. And you wouldn't believe who it is. You'd be like, what? Really? Cool. But anyway, and I was talking to this person this week and they said to me, oh, excuse me. I'll try not to do like a voice or anything because then you'll know, excuse me. Did you get a call from the pardon people? I just love that, those two words together. The pardon people. And I said, no, I didn't. And obviously I realized right away that they were thinking that I had been a reference on something and maybe they were going to call the references. And then this person said to me, well, I need to tell you, I got my pardon. And then they got really emotional. And they said, it actually said in it something along the lines, I don't know the exact words, but we hope that you know the blessing or something, maybe not that word, that's too churchy but of your freedom. And then it encouraged, this pardon document, encouraged that they would go and be able to set an example having this debt forgiven. It's remarkable. In the book, The Fall, if you took grade 12 in and around here, I suppose, lower mainland, wasn't it grade 12 you read The Outsider or grade 10 or something? So the same author has this other book called The Fall. And in that book, the main character is named Jean-Baptiste, which is anytime you see a name like that, you think, okay, something's being said here. But Jean-Baptiste is sophisticated, urban, um, good person, I think. I haven't actually read the book, but I know this part of it. The heart of it is that it must be towards the beginning. I'm not sure. He sees a young woman preparing to take her own life on a bridge. And he walks by pretending not to notice. And after he does, he hears the splash. He doesn't report the incident. And the rest of the work is talking about how his life is taken over by trying to elude the sense of judgment that he feels for not having helped or said anything. The idea is that we can carry around some kind of guilt sorrow, pain about our own worthiness, our own shortcomings, and Christian teaching would say our own sin. He says in the book 
that as he lives this way, he realizes that we don't have to wait for the last judgment. It's a very Christian image, the day of the Lord or the last judgment. He says we don't have to wait for the last judgment because it takes place every day inside of each of us. That's not a theological statement. It's narrative to this book. But it's to speak to the fact that there are times when we are reminded that we do sin, we do fall short, we do leave undone things that we should have done, and we do things that we ought not to have done. T.S. Eliot, famous poet, but this is from a play of his. Stay with me as I read this through. He says, half of the harm that is done in this world, and here's a man who was T.S. Eliot himself, very popular, sophisticated, uh, among the you know, creme de la creme of writers and poets in his own time. And then he became a Christian. And so he writes beautiful poetry, still just as more popular, but it's interesting the effect that it had on some of these relationships. He says, half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They might not or they don't mean to do harm, but the harm doesn't interest them. Or they do not see it, or they justify it. And here's the heart where I want to go here. Because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. And I say, welcome to church, every one of you. Don't you want to think well of yourself? Don't you want to think that you're a little bit better than me? Or almost? Or I'm a pastor, so I'm supposed to be better than you, but I'm not. Or than people who aren't here? Or maybe they're okay too, but this endless struggle to think well of themselves. You know what this struggle means. We like to be in charge. In our culture, we don't like to think about judgment. But each of you can tell me, trust me, I know, because from many of you I've heard it. And I accept that you've heard it from me. But each of you can tell me a lot about what other people are doing wrong. can be the same. In Genesis 3, verses 12 and 13, after the fall, the eating of this fruit in the Garden of Eden, God speaks to Adam after the sin and to Eve, and Adam says to God, the woman, I'm leaving this in the King James because it just sounds better. It's nicer language blaming someone. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me the fruit. And I ate it. In other words, don't blame me. And God simply turns to Eve and Eve says, the serpent beguiled me and I ate of the fruit. The devil made me do it. And in our world now, there is an elevation of self. I want to show you a little ad, 30 second ad. I think it was on during the Super Bowl. That's when I saw it. And there's a whole ad campaign for Diet Coke. And I'll comment on it briefly after it. You ready? Listen to all these words. It's delicious. It makes me feel good. Life is short. If you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up. If you want to run a marathon, I mean, that sounds super hard, but okay. I mean, just do you, whatever that is. And if you're in the mood for a Diet Coke, have a Diet Coke. Diet Coke. Because I can. 
Thanks be to God. I want to be careful with this because I think sometimes we point out some of the silliness of culture. But we have to remember that much of culture has rejected the church and chosen something that we see as vacant or silly. But interestingly enough, they might see that as more meaningful than what we have to offer. And one of the phrases, the lines that's in this realm right now, it's in this ad where she says, you know, you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up. And then, but she gets to the heart of it, which is, just do you. In other words, the one blameless thing in our world and in life is you. Just do you. Now, I want you to go back to the woman anointing Jesus' feet, who comes weeping, who comes with her head down, who comes knowing that she will be judged by these religious people. But she is so drawn to Jesus Christ. Why? It's the other side of the cross. We know why. Because his love is so compelling that it's bigger than any sin that is there. In the end, Jesus says to those who are judging her, You think she's a sinner and you're not, and that's what's keeping you from understanding my love. The minute you look down on her, that shows why you don't get what I've done for the world. Why is she so compelled towards Jesus Christ? And can you imagine for a moment, so now, you know, imaginatively change the story. Jesus puts his hand on her shoulder and he says, don't worry about it, just do you. How hopeful would she feel then? You're okay. You haven't done anything wrong. He doesn't say that at all. Courtroom drama is the first image as we look at sin and the cross. And in the Old Testament, God has a case against his people. You can see it in places like Isaiah 26, 21. You see it all through many parts of the Old Testament, particularly the prophets. The Lord is coming forth out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Hear this sin language for their sin. Or in Joel, the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Here is the imagery. Sin and rebellion taking place in the metaphor of the courtroom. Jesus, well, God in the Old Testament is putting before the world a case. And there are charges. You will read this in the prophets. God is gathering a court scene. And sometimes it says, I was thinking of these drywall mountains. But anyway, God gathers the mountains and nature and everything, the skies, and says, come to be part of this courtroom because I have a case against my people. And here are the charges. That they have forgotten God. That they have worshipped and served idols. That they have forgotten the needy. And that they have treated other people unjustly. In other words, they have said, foreigners don't have the rights that we have, whatever it might be. That's the charges against the people. And a judgment is going to be rendered. And I would say to you, just based on those charges alone, how would you do? Forgotten God? It's not the place to shout out amen, but we could say amen. 
I've worshipped and served idols, sometimes of my own making, sometimes an idol like money. I've forgotten the needy. That's the tough one. Every day I've forgotten the needy. And I've treated others unjustly. And now I'm in that defendant's docket, sitting at the table or testifying, but I have nothing to say in my defense. How would you do? Jeremiah 2, verses 34 and 35 On your skirts is found the blood of the guiltless poor. Isn't that incredible imagery? God speaking to his own people, well-dressed. But on your skirts is found the blood of the guiltless poor. Yet you say, I am innocent. And God says, I will bring you to judgment because you say, I have not sinned. In our culture, as I said, judgment has been de-emphasized. Well, only in some ways. We live in the most judgmental culture we've ever seen in other ways. But the church has at times been depicted as an organization or a group of people that are against the world. Or that within itself, the church, Christian people think, well, sinners means other people. You know that, right? I know that if you've grown up in church, that is something that at least at some point was in your head. Other people were sinners. Certainly worse than you. And I say, I will bring you to judgment because you say I have not sinned. Even here we can emphasize God's love for us, which is true. God's welcome to us, which is true. But God does not say to us, you just do you. He says, I have come that you might have life and life to the full, and he can deal even with your sin. How inviting is that? The image is the cross. The cross is where God's verdict on sin is pronounced. And by the cross we have forgiveness. I'll give you one more theological term. Very important in our study of the cross. And that is, you can, I'll spell it for you, it's prevenient grace. P-R-E-V-E-N-I-E-N-T. Prevenient grace. What it means is this. Before any sin, before any wrongdoing, before any rebellion, was the grace of God. It doesn't start with sin. Jesus Christ is pre-existent in history, our scriptures say. It wasn't that we sinned and then God, th- God thought, oh no, what are we going to do? Better think up Jesus. Grace is prior, prevenient. So that when you look at the cross, you realize God's plan all along was to take on our sin himself. And then the courtroom drama changes and you know that the verdict that is pronounced is the cross. Gathered there, and you can think of Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate, the Romans, the Pharisees, all the people who thought they were the ones rendering judgment, right? Pilate has to make a judgment. The Pharisees have to make a judgment. The Romans, of course, over all of this. And the crowds themselves crucify him. But somehow, and this is where we say, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to this. Behind all of this, God himself 
is giving the verdict. He is rendering the judgment. And he becomes the judged judge in our place. And if you think you are without sin, you won't get close to this. And then in Revelation, all of history, what does it all mean? What does this world mean? What does history itself mean? You don't know. I don't know. But Christian scripture is going to say, Here's, we'll give you a picture of what it's like when things have come to completion in the end. And it's a scene before a throne, right? And there's scrolls to be opened. And nobody can open the scrolls. And then who, what appears? A lamb who was slain. In other words, all of history comes together in the cross. Yes, sin and rebellion, but forgiveness. I have sinned, but before I have sinned, his grace is sufficient. He loved me before and while and yet while I am a sinner. We have been judged. You have been weighed. You have been found wanting. And in Jesus Christ you have been forgiven. That is why everything that we think as Christians is changed by the cross. We look to the cross and we see that we can accept God's judgment. It isn't something for us to try to tone down in the world. To think, well, I don't ever want to talk about God's judgment. That might upset people. That's if you talk about judgment like the Pharisee understood. Of course that will upset people. Yes, God judges us but he is for us even while we are sinners and as Jesus reached out to this woman and said told the Pharisee that her many sins were forgiven and said to her that she was saved by this faith we get a new problem now right the problem we have is not wondering if God is for us I mean, we can still struggle with that. Many of you can still struggle with that. But the problem is when you realize by the cross, God has announced that he is for everyone else too. Everyone else. The hope of the cross is that God is going to deal with the sin of humanity and set things right. So let me give you a few brief things that you see on the screen to leave with. Firstly, these are like nice little convenient things you can try. Firstly, number one, learn in your mind, in your thoughts towards other people, in your relationships, in your marriage, wherever it is, learn to think and say, that's on me. I don't mean that you take the blame for something that, you know, I'm not looking about martyr here, but understanding that you are contributing to the problems of all the relationships that you're in. And sometimes in your actions, you can think of a simple action. I shouldn't have done that. That's on me. And understand that this is a grace. But the reason that it's a grace is because we're hopeful that the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, deals with sin. Without the cross, how could that be hopeful? Other than maybe some behavior modification. So when I can say, no, sorry. Now I'm thinking about my Christian faith, right? When I can say to 
one of my kids, now two adults, giant troublemakers. But when I'm upset or stressed and I act in a way and I tell myself, well, I'm only acting this way because they upset me. When I can say to them, no, you know what? That's on me. There's grace there. Secondly, hi, Isabel. (laughs) Had to do that. (laughs) Um, Secondly, understand God's love for all. We don't need to divide the world into sinners and non-sinners. There shouldn't be in Christian vocabulary this idea, and a woman came who was a sinner, unless we're using it to say, like me. So pray that the Holy Spirit would relieve you, because I could look around and I could say, you might even have the desire for this, but this is a tough one to battle. You think that other people are not as deserving or something. God's love is for all. The story shows us that. And finally, that we could say in a prayer, so you can write this out, pray it this week, start this prayer, and see where the Holy Spirit leads you. Dear God, now thinking of yourself, not the other person that you know is wrong, please. Dear God, thank you for your judgment. You hear that now? Thank you for your judgment, because there's no other place where I'm safe to admit my sinfulness. Dear God, thank you for your judgment. You become the woman anointing Jesus' feet. So for me as a Christian, everything I see, I I mean this. Sometimes I have to remind myself of it, but many times I've been Christian for years now. It's interesting, you can say, I am thinking differently because of this. Everything I see, I see differently because of the cross. Everything. You. This gathering. This world. My life. My shortcomings. My sin. Joy. Need in the world. This help of other people. Everything I see, I see differently because of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what makes Christians distinct in their worldview. Worthy, this is from the Revelation image that I told you about before. Because when the Lamb appears, the slain Lamb, which is the image of Jesus Christ on the cross, when the Lamb that was slain appears and the scrolls are opened, right? All of history gathered around the throne sings. And this is Christian hope. Admitting our own sinfulness, our own fallenness, but in the end of all things singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do this grace for us and help us to see that sin is no match for you. We have treated it as such. We've been scandalized by sin, sometimes in Christian circles, religious circles. Certainly in this world, it's just different kinds of sin in the news cycles and whatever makes the list and we're scandalized. But you, Lord God, have made a way, and this is hard for us to admit, you have made a way for the victim and the perpetrator. And we are both 
Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. Jesus Messiah. stay for prayer afterwards either where you are when we after we pronounce the benediction or